Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers, which is why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Ross Mueller has written extensively for theatre and radio. He's been shortlisted for the Patrick White Playwrights Award on three separate occasions. He's been commissioned by Melbourne Theatre Company, Playbox, Canberra Youth Theatre, Hothouse and ABC Radio National. He's also been an affiliate of the Melbourne Theatre Company and a founding member of Melbourne Dramatists. And in March 2009, his play Concussion, published by Currency Press, won Ross the New York New Dramatists Playwright Exchange. The play that we're here to talk about today, A Town Named Warboy, is based on the State Library of New South Wales' jaw-dropping collection of First World War diaries, photographs and letters. A Town Named Warboy brings to life the personal accounts of the young men that set sail for the far side of the world. Their exploits are our history. Their sacrifices are steeped in the Anzac legend. Some of the diaries and letters in the State Library's collection are finished, others just stop. And when you read them, you meet the person, you see the changes in their handwriting, feel the indentation of the pen, the smudges of changed thoughts. Our young past is captured here, alive and preserved. In a town named Warboy, Ross Mueller shows his extraordinary talent, a new Australian play that connects young men three generations apart. Ross, welcome to Not In Print. Thanks, Toby. It's good to be here. I wanted to start with the inspiration for the play, which is uh, these World War I diaries that are in the archives of the State Library of New South Wales. And I wanted to read something from their website that actually describes the immensity of what these diaries contain. Mm. So they were written by teachers, farmers, clerks, architects, people from all walks of life. Some of them were even still at school at the Mm. time that they enlisted. And they came from cities, they came from regional towns and the bush. And for many, the only link back to a life that was dramatically interrupted by this war was a personal diary with tales of adventure and heartache and bravery and, of course, thoughts of home. So from 1918, the State Library actually began collecting these stories of soldiers, uh, doctors, nurses, stretcher bearers and journalists as well, uh, so that future generations would know about their experience. It's an incredible collection that I'd never heard of, Ross. How did you hear about it? Well, I heard about it when the, the library approached me uh, through ATYP and they said that they had this collection and they you know, were obviously aware of the anniversary that was coming up in 2015 and they wanted to create a project that was going to activate a, a greater awareness of this online resource, which is, like you say, a sensational collection of real Real words by real people. So on the library's website again, Ross, I found this quote regarding the um, the acquisition of the diaries. Right. William Ifold, who was the principal librarian at the time, he was particularly interested in purchasing descriptive collections, which really expressed the personal feelings mm. of the men and the women, their experiences in battle and their observations of the conflict. 
I think that's a really interesting curatorial choice for him to have made because he could have just focused on diaries that gave like a factual overview of events or, or not put out the call for diaries at all and just gone for academic criticism. But what was it about the stories that, that drew you in? Well, exactly the starting point for the curation, the fact that the words that were written are real, the fact that the, the project that I was being asked to partake in was not something that was about battle lines and, and um, battalions and, and names of divisions. It was really about feelings and thoughts and uh, real interactions that people were having um, with each other in the trenches. Mm. They said, you know, the, the librarian said to me in the first place, the National War Museum in Canberra has got a collection of diaries that specifically deal with, you know, which trench was taken when and, and you know, what uh, were all the specific manoeuvres around the place. And they said, you know, we're not interested in you delving into that because that's already been done and it will be done again and again. And they really wanted to give the voices of the writers that they had the opportunity to be heard by a new generation and transcribing these works onto a format which makes them available to children all over the world or young people all over the state is fantastic. And it's a terrific sort of ongoing organic resource. And to be able to put it into another form like a stage play was as an activation to remind um, you know kids and students that it's there. It's a great opportunity. It's amazing. And mm. it wasn't just diaries either. I mean, there's letters, photographs, maps, mm. artwork, all sorts of printed material came yeah. in. What were some of the most exciting discoveries that you found there for you? Yeah, well, look, I can honestly say there wasn't anything that wasn't amazing. The, I think the most amazing and exciting opportunity and discovery that I had was to go into the vaults of the library and hold some of the diaries and feel them and actually see them. They're exactly what you imagine, but they're not what you expect. You know, they're little books and really thin pieces of um, paper and they've got tiny, tiny blue pencil handwriting. They look like traveller's diaries that have been kept in books that people have just found at a railway station, you know. They are really stolen moments and they're young men and women uh, recording, you know, what they know to be their final days. That was one of the things that really struck me that one of the librarians was talking about was... Um, a lot of what was written in this collection was written with the understanding that they're not going to get out of this. And it's not like a Facebook status post. It's not like uh, a letter home. This is something that um, a lot of them knew was going to be found on their bodies. It's not going to be, you know, dear folks, things are going well. So they were writing them with this intention of protecting their families from the truth. Uh, and then every now and again, there's this little explosion of truth inside some of the diaries. And, you know, you can see that the, um, the horror is real and that the, the cheery soul sort of face that they've been putting on is, can't be left up forever sort of thing. So, yeah, it's the, the biggest discovery, I think, was actually being able to hold them and access that in a physical, tangible way. It was great. Was it difficult to actually go through all of those stories and experience those moments in such detail with those men? Uh, well... And women? 
Yeah. Yeah, you get attached. and But not, I mean, the librarians are really, they're the fascinating people in, in a lot of way. Um, like, they know these guys intimately. And when they were talking to me about, you know, oh, you should have a look at this one or you should have a look at that one, it didn't feel to me like they were talking about books. It felt like they were talking about people, you know. They were saying, oh, you should meet Toby, you know, or you should you know, read Toby's stuff. He's really good. And, you know, Toby did this and Toby went there and, and it wasn't like it was an academic experience for them. It was a real personal engagement. And, you know, the whole process of getting something online that has been found in, you know, 1915 is uh, it's a pretty amazing thing. And they were saying that a couple of the um, volunteers would come in day after day and they're working on one particular diary and then each diary might be, say, four or five volumes. And uh, they get to the end of one diary volume and they'll come back and they'll say, can I have the next one? Yep, yep, yep. And then they'll get to the end of one and they come back and they say, can I have the next one? And they say, well, that's it for that person. That's all we've got. And they've said, but it just stops. And... That's the truth. That's what happened is that, um, you know, a lot of them don't get to finish the story themselves. Well, let's start talking about the story that you then created from this collection. I mean, the collection is obviously so large. The scope is so broad, actually. Tells a story, as we were saying, of, of soldiers, but also nurses who served. And then there's material about the home front in Australia during the war as well. Mm. With such a wealth of perspectives available to you and from so many angles, how did you decide what you were going to include and <laughs> what you were going to leave out when you were creating a town called Warboy? Yeah, well, you still feel guilty about what you've left out. You've got to put the, the blinkers on, I think, because the job that I was brought in to do was to create a play for Australian theatre for young people. So you've got to work within the parameters of knowing that it's, no, you know, number one, hopefully it's going to tour. So it needs to be, you know, small enough and, and physical enough to be able to fit in the back of a truck rather than <laughs> we're going to do an installation at Bondi Beach. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so those sort of parameters are very real when you're creating a, a script. But it's also... Um, a reality that an audience can only absorb so much too. When I go to the theatre, I really want to see a story that I'm, I can invest in and I can, you know, create a, a, an empathy or a link with one or two of those characters. I, I don't want to see something, or I, you know, not I don't want to see, but I, I think it's, it's impossible to expect that you can create a piece that's going to encompass all of those perspectives. So the job was really to identify the one or two or the three that was most unexpected. So are some of the characters within a town called Warboy, do they translate directly from uh, diaries as a kind of a, a through line, I suppose, for, through, through one person's journey? Pretty much. And <clears throat> the thing about um, the First World War, too, is that the journey itself was, was not dissimilar for each of the participants from Australia in the fact that we all had to get on a boat. And, um, you know, that's ironic now, isn't it? But that, that whole idea of, uh, you know, training, getting on the, the boat, going overseas, training, waiting, then going to a battle, that's pretty much the template for anybody that was engaged in World War One from Australia. So that was an advantage for me as a, as a 
dramatist because that gives you a ritual or it gives you a um, you know a time frame that any of those voices is going to be able to reverberate through. It makes sense that you know all of the guys that went to war had to go on a boat, so you're going to have scenes on a boat, and it's not going to be well. That was only happening in you know this certain part of the Pacific or something like that, like it would be in World War Two. So yeah, it was. It had those had those sculptured moments where you know a scene is going to happen, and so what I did was I tried to create a series of characters that were amalgamations of the diaries that um, I'd read, but also had um, an inner truth of like one or two of the the journeys that was taken by these guys. And considering that everyone did have this shared journey or experience yeah. pretty much where did you find the unexpected well pretty easily there's a guy called silas who um is just gold <laughs> for um a story like this in that he is uh, english by birth and he's lived in australia for a couple of years and um when the war starts up he decides he's gonna fight for his new adopted country and so he will you know join up and go and fight for Australia and he's a painter and he's small and uh, so when he's first engaged with um, the Australian army you know there's there's a really a great object objectivity in his words because he's looking at Australians in that close proximity and he's making judgments and saying you know how rough and unruly and all that kind of stuff that they are but then he's talking about how easily he's accepted too and and um how he's filled with doubts because he doesn't think he's going to be able to measure up with you know these guys because they're built like you know tree trunks and all this kind of stuff and he ends up going to be a signal a signaler in um gallipoli and it's one of the most dangerous jobs you can have because you're on a battlefield with trenches and you're the guy standing there with yellow flags saying, they're over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, the um, survival rate of those guys was pretty low. So the fact that he did survive was amazing in itself. But the fact that he had such a unique voice was pretty, you know, wonderful for the creation of this kind of material. Because, you know, the majority of us don't have, you know, war in our culture as our first nature. And uh, he certainly didn't. And the, you know, none of his words were patriotic. He he was really an analysing, you know, what they what he was doing there and whether he belonged there or not. And how did uh, somebody like him end up in a place like that? And you know, for theatre or or drama, that's a great fish out of water outside a story. And looking at the men and women that would have gone to war in the First World War, so many of them never having left Australia before, yeah. not being interconnected with the globe in the way that we are now, it must have been such an incredible shock for them to yeah. have experienced what they did, having absolutely no idea of how things were going to turn out, obviously. But, well, that's right. And, you know, that's that's a really... I think that's a really big thing and a really hard thing for us and uh, younger generations of Australians to truly understand. Like, turn yourself off from Facebook, from Twitter, from email for a day and times that by a million. And that's the kind of 
you know, vacuum that a lot of these young people were living in, in at the bottom of Australia, on the bottom of the world. Mm. And like you say, a lot of them wouldn't have left Australia before. A lot of them wouldn't have left their hometown before. You know, a lot of them wouldn't have left their state before for sure. And the idea of going to the other side of the world, I, I honestly think that it wasn't truly understood that it was that far away, you know, that this was uh, this conflict was happening so far away in time and place. And, yeah, like there's some pieces of paper in this collection which are notes from soldiers' mothers giving them permission to go to war and because they're underage. So, but, yeah, it's okay for James to join up. I'm aware that he's uh, joining the Australian Defence Forces and, um, you know, signed Mrs Mueller. And it's as simple as that. And Fraser Caulfield and I were talking about it and were saying it's like their mothers were giving them permission to go to a swimming carnival. Mm. And if you were going to a swimming carnival at their age now, your consent form would be a hell of a lot longer than it is <laughs> for what they were doing and sending them to Gallipoli. The idea of handing over responsibility to the army in such a simple letter was yeah, it was a pretty stark reminder of a different era. Yeah, it's really shocking, actually. Um, yeah. And I guess I wonder, and this might be a difficult question to answer, but yeah. I did want to actually put to you um, that one of the aspects of this war and others too, which is often forgotten, and this is going to be a difficult one to swallow for some people, is the excitement of travel and adventure for these oh. young men as well. So many of them who left Australian shores that never done so before, they found themselves in Cairo with oh. its ancient culture, its archaeological wonders, the freedoms that come with being oh. thousands of kilometres away from home. And I want to read this, uh, this quote from Huddo. He says, I love every disgusting inch of you, every dirty little alley, every dusty backroom bar. The pyramids are marvellous, but I could spend the rest of my days quite happily in the arms of your temptation. What sort of insights and reflections did you find, Ross, about these adventures in the State Library's collection? Mm. Well, again, it's, uh, you know, you put a bunch of young people in a place, like, it's like schoolies, you know, gone mad. That's kind of what Cairo is, I guess, isn't it? And for them in those days. And it, it was this place of ancient fascination for some guys. And, and yet, you know, it's also a place where they've got R&R. &R, you know, they've got a certain amount of time that they know that they're going to be going into battle. You know, you'd be mad not to enjoy life to the full. And it was British occupied at the time, so mm. there were lots of bars around as well. You could That's get right. alcohol really easily, which is much more difficult these days in a yeah. place like Cairo. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this part of the, I think it was Silas, I'm not sure, I think from memory it was, that um, where he, meet, he goes to get his teeth fixed there and, uh, you know, meets up with this dentist who is this, you know, really culturally aware guy and he takes him on tours of the museums and they just you know create this friendship over a period of weeks where they meet for tea and drinks and this sort of pocket of of an oasis you know of civilization in the middle of this madness uh, yeah i think it was a pretty dramatic shift for a lot of them in in a variety of ways in that yeah sure there was the the craziness but i think there was also this sort of um, plateau of peace too for some of them before 
and John in the play, um, he finds real inspiration there as, as mm. well in Cairo. He visits the Arab Museum, the tombs of the Mamelukes, mm. and uh, he explores cafes alone, regular lunches with the Garavedians, I think mm-hmm. I'm pronouncing mm. that correctly. Um, he says that Egypt is heaven, like a family. They look after me. They fix my mouth and fill my belly, show me a different side of the world. And look, that's really interest- interesting to me, yeah. Ross, and, and sad and ironic too, because on the one hand, these men find themselves making connections on foreign soil, and then they find themselves on Turkish shores a few months later fighting in Britain's yeah. war. I mean, if Turkey wasn't allied with Germany at the time, perhaps they would have stopped off in Turkey before they went somewhere else. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's such a strange kind of thing to think about. What What is war really? Why are we there? Who are we fighting for? What does it mean? Yeah. Do you have any ideas of how to approach that whole mess of questions there? Yeah, sure. Look, when I was at university, I studied politics and history. I didn't, I didn't come to theatre for you know some years after that. So I've always been really sort of tuned in to change and want to know about you know who we are, where we've come from, and that study of war was part of that um, undergraduate degree hundred years ago, and. Yeah, the First World War was definitely one of the the last real hand-to-hand wars. And that idea of, you know, well, we're fighting you, but what was that about? I'm not sure again. It was, um, I think, felt on both sides. And those stories about, you know, the men coming out of the trenches on Christmas Eve and, you know, truces to bury your dead and all that kind of stuff is real. And uh, that doesn't happen too often post-World War One, And, you know, the madness, I think, of um, First World War was definitely the, the sort of the general's willingness to hang on to old-fashioned ways of fighting and that, in, you know, sort of belief that um, the weight of numbers will defeat the enemy it was definitely the tragedy of Gallipoli and is definitely, you know, the reason that... Um, we're still talking about it now because it, it was such a bloodbath. The Anzacs arrived in Gallipoli on the dawn of uh, April the 25th in 1915. Right. Any excitement, obviously, about travel would have been obliterated pretty quickly for these <laughs> young men. Yeah. And they didn't leave until December uh, 1915. The campaign was deemed a heroic but really costly failure. Yeah. And I want to hear about the stories that you read from the diaries of the men who were there. What were they saying? They were pretty much articulating what you were saying, that, you know, this is, um, they were bogged down, this is not going anywhere. And, uh, you know, when you look at the the stretch of land that they were on, how tiny it was, it, you'd be mad if you were involved with that and you were thinking that this was a success. You know, that they weren't taking the land that they were expecting. They'd landed at a, a, a place, a cove on a cliff that they didn't expect to be able to, um, they didn't expect that. They didn't expect the place that um, that they were arriving at. They knew, I think, pretty much from day one that this was a mistake. It was a disaster. Were they frustrated? Were they angry? Mm. Did they feel cheated? Yeah, I think so. I mean, but I think also, you know, a lot of what they were saying too is about they have to... Um, you, you can't just drop your load and, and say that, you know, when people are shooting at you. So that balance, I think, of, of anger and frustration. I think that the feeling of 
like you, the word you use, cheated, that sort of, um, I think that's something that we lay onto history. I think that the guys that were in it or the guys that were writing about it or the stuff that I read anyway was definitely sort of aware of the horror, aware of the danger and aware that they may not get out and was written in that lens, written with that lens. So, yeah, I, I just, I just, yeah, I think it's a generational thing. I think that they probably were too busy living to worry about, you know, who's to blame for this. And, yeah, like a lot of the our understanding of the truth of that campaign comes from uh, the Murdoch uh, Library and the Murdoch letters that he wrote to the Prime Minister. And... S- yeah, where there is a true sort of political objectivity about this is what's happened, this can't go on. Whereas a lot of the guys that I was reading were detailing things that they were doing just on a day-to-day basis of, you know, the trying to track down food or trying to track down, you know, more ammunition or trying to find their friends. And that's an amazing thing too when you think about it. You know, there's tiny beach and, um, you know, they're shooting rabbits and things like that to get food. Now, this is a real survivor mode rather than um, objective um, political analysis mode, I think. I mean, it's all tied in with now the spirit of Anzac, which again yeah. is quite a difficult thing to actually define entirely. And, and I think that's kind of where we're, we're getting at. You and yeah. I were both asking questions about why was this a defining moment? How did it become that? And and now I just wanted to read a a quote from historian C.E.W. Bean, who says that the spirit of Anzac means having stood for and still standing for reckless valour in a good cause, for enterprise, for resourcefulness, for fidelity, comradeship and endurance that will never own defeat. Do you think that the spirit of the Anzacs is actually just the Australian spirit? Is it, are the two of those essentially the same thing? I'm sure that every nation would say that. Right. And I think that that's, that's the one... Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting part of the interview, isn't it? That, that's one thing that we sort of pretend that um, is very an, an Australian you know, trait. You know, tell the Turks that that's not a Turkish trait, you know, that they will never own defeat, that they, you know stand up for something, you know, tell the Russians that, you know, tell the Germans that, you know, I think that um, that's the people who write history write it from their own perspective. And, um, yeah, we like to believe that that's who we are. I hope that is who we are. But um, I'm sure that's who everybody is. I think it's really important that we look at the after effects of war as well on the psyches of these young men who served. I mean, we're much more familiar with the psychological effects of war these days. Yeah. But what kind of treatment did these men receive at home after the First World War when they came up against the destabilizing effects of post-traumatic stress disorder? Yeah, very, very little. And um, I think that was one of the things that I imposed on the story because I feel that it's something that a contemporary audience understands about a deprogramming or a deprocessing of what war is. But, yeah, back in the day, it didn't happen. So what happens in a town called Warboy is actually yeah. something that probably wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and I guess, you know, the, the metaphor of the boat and um, is really the way that they would have dealt with it, you know, go out by themselves or go 
fishing or something or you know but be um outside of that formal structure of society and you know there's an image in the play about the when they're in the boat and they're looking back at the town and i think that that's um you know my sort of way of acknowledging that there wasn't a real way of helping that we do have today i mean they called them a lost generation didn't Mm. they do you think these men were unable to be saved or do you think that people simply didn't know how to actually deal with men who had experienced something that intense well i think you're right i think there was no template for how to deal with it and i know my great aunt she grew up in Echuca and she had friends who went to war and never came back and you know she was one of those women of that era that you know didn't see too many men after the war because they they didn't come back to the the town and so yeah I can understand why that label of lost generation because a lot of the boys that did come back I guess found it hard to fit back into a, a normal structure and they were the ones that came back you know, there's uh, a lot that didn't. So, yeah, that gap, I think, was definitely in her life for the rest of her life. And she lived until she was you know, 87 or something. And um, But, yeah, that sort of it had a huge echo on the, the way that the, our society has been structured. So maybe that's why it was the defining moment of Australian history. Mm. What was the biggest challenge putting all of this together, turning it into a narrative? Yeah. Leaving stuff out, I think, really. And one of the things that I did when I first started was I turned as uh, probably half a dozen separate diaries into word docs and, you know, set myself this sort of way of how I was going to catalogue words that, you know, were important or pieces that I felt needed to be used verbatim or pieces that I thought were going to provide background, that kind of thing. So I had this amazing colour coding system And I like Excel spreadsheets, so I was using that as well. And um, which was a really sort of technical way of going about writing a play and saying, well, this has to be included. I can't leave this bit out, blah, blah, blah. And I look back after the first day of doing that and everything was in the same color. It was all, all, this has to be included. Yeah, so I realized then you got to be tough. And when I started creating characters for these words to exist as a vehicle, I um, discovered that a lot of the stuff that I had jettisoned was able to appear as dialogue rather than just as soliloquy or monologue. And um, that was really satisfying. So I sort of felt that, yeah, I was able to welcome some of it back too. (laughs) And is there really a town called Warboy? It's a spelling mistake. But yes, in one of the diaries... um, it says, you know, the young guy says, you know, we, we stayed at a town named Warboy. And we, we think, and the librarians think, that I think, I think, <laughs> it's a spelling mistake. But, um, you know, for me, that's the interesting part too, is that, you know, there's always going to be a town named Warboy if, if we're living in a world of conflict. And the people that are being involved in each of those conflicts is... They're becoming more and and more innocent of um, patriotic duty and and more just about, you know, 
how do I survive this? And I think that, yeah, that name resonated as a title because it, it feels like a place that each generation visits rather than a, a specific place on the map. Thanks so much for coming to talk to me about your play, Ross. That's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode or any other episode, then we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press, with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.